This event is the final program in a three-part series that examines the turbulent past and present of immigration in the United States. If you missed the Boston Globe journalist uh, Neil Swidey's lecture in September, or the panel discussion on the Chinese Exclusion Act in October, you can find video and audio recordings on the Athenaeum's website. There will also be a recording of this evening's um, performance. Please also visit the small insta installation of immigration-related materials from the Athenaeum's collection in the sitting room next to the membership office in the back. Just a little over a year ago, on November 9th, 2016, to be exact, literary people, including the poets of the Poets' Theater, started recirculating a fragment by W.A.H. Auden that suddenly came to mind as an apt expression of a pall that had suddenly fallen across the national mood. I'm going to read that excerpt from the, the Auden's poem, and it includes an injunction to poets which is relevant to this evening's program. In the nightmare of the dark, all the dogs of Europe bark, and the living nations wait, each sequestered in its hate. Intellectual disgrace stares from every human face, and the seas of pity lie locked and frozen in each eye. Follow, poet, follow right to the bottom of the night. With your unconstraining voice, still persuade us to rejoice. With the farming of a verse, make a vineyard of the curse. Sing of human unsuccess in a rapture of distress. In the deserts of the heart, let the healing fountain start. In the prison of his days, teach the free man how to praise. The Poets Theatre's mission and its raison d'etre, and I'm supposed to move my own slides forward as we go, um, is to celebrate the power of words, and words especially embodied for us in performance. Your performers tonight are, from the far left, um, Nora Hussey, Ben Evett, Hilary Rappaport, and Aidan Parkinson. As our three programs with the Boston Athenaeum last year made clear, first we did a muster of contemporary poets, and each of them was asked to recall a 19th century poet, someone who would have frequented the Athenaeum, by responding to their poetry. These are the eight 19th century poets and the curtain call for the event, um, so you can't see our contemporary poets, but a major part of the Poets Theater's mission and its link with the Athenaeum. The second program was written by David Coulette, our literary director, and it was on the rhetoric and perseverance of the Boston abolitionists. Many of you who are here uh, caught that program as well. And our third, also compiled by our literary director, was a historical collage of the writings of four generations of Adamses. John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Charles Francis Adams, and Henry Adams. Most of them, except for the last, Henry Adams, who was the rebel and renegade who sort of broke with the family tradition, are actually portrayed here in this room. The busts in that far corner and the paintings, um, which uh, some of which are reproduced right here. What these programs made clear is that we like to explore the power of poetry and by extension oratory and public rhetoric. And we like to explore how it exerts a power on the mind and on our living culture and on ongoing history itself. I'm told there's an election going on right now. This is a mission enshrined also in the Athenaeum and its long tradition. 
and all our research has been inspired and derived from the library around you. Um, this story about a public monument, which you can see in the background of this slide, and its relation to immigration is multi-layered. For I compress in it two time frames into this upcoming hour. One is a nod, which is inadequate to the subject, towards the contemporary crisis of current immigrants in Boston. But the greater part of what you are about to hear tells a story from 100 years um, ago when Boston was overrun, and I use the contemporary phrase, first by Irish immigrants escaping the devastating famines of the mid-19th century, and rapidly on, the here, here, on their heels, an unprecedented wave of Italian immigrants fleeing mainly from the south of Italy and from Sicily after the Garibaldi Wars and the raggedy unification of Italy. Bostonians of Irish and Italian descent still make up to this day the two, two largest ethnic populations in the greater Boston area. I attended an event at the seaport just a couple of weeks ago, uh, and after Representative Mike Capuano spoke to a mainly Irish audience of uh, a local politico, followed up, came to the podium and said, we have long since ceased to care, whether the O comes at the beginning or at the end of your name. <laughs> but he did imply that a prominent O should be somewhere, <laughs> whether explicit or implied, and it took a century for that to become a good-natured joke. At the same time in the audience, I could not be sure a Haitian or a Vietnamese or a Guatemalan Bostonian immigrant, what would they make of such a remark? Our story begins with Emma Lazarus, a wealthy fourth-generation Sephardic Jew whose family came to New York from Portugal in colonial times long before the War for Independence. Emma was completely American and a highly educated woman, a social activist, and a poet. Her family derived its wealth from sugar refinery, and that, alas, over the years her family history spanned, involved slavery on sugar plantations in Louisiana. But ironies abound in what you're about to hear, and our story opens with the Statue of Liberty and Emma Lazarus's indelible mark upon it. Poems and allegorical statuary are strikingly different forms of public art, but the two art forms curiously intertwined towards the close of the 19th century. The New Colossus. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. These words have become as well-known and as deeply embedded in American patriotic lore as those of the Pledge of Allegiance, or of the Gettysburg Address, or of the Declaration of Independence itself. But only recently have people remembered that these lines are excerpted from an 1883 sonnet by American poet Emma Lazarus, written three years before the statue was completed and dedicated in 1886. Emma Lazarus's poem was not read at the dedication. Women were not allowed on Bedloe's Island during the dedication ceremonies. President Grover Cleveland held forth in different terms and with different purpose. The statue's official title is in French, La Liberté et Clairant le Monde and Grover Cleveland's speech on October 28, 1886, made him, as he read it, 
echo the French title when he intoned, The people of the United States, except from their brethren of the French Republic, with gratitude today, this grand and imposing work of art which we here inaugurate. This statue's stream of light shall pierce the darkness of ignorance and man's oppression until liberty enlightens the world. The women's movement hired a boat to get as close as possible to the island from which they had been barred. They drew attention to themselves, and while glad the statue depicted a woman, pointed out that the female half of the population of the United States was not at liberty to vote. And shortly after the dedication of the statue, the Cleveland Gazette, an African-American newspaper nicknamed Old Reliable for its 58 years of unbroken publication, the Gazette suggested that the statue's torch not be lit until the United States became a free nation in reality. Liberty enlightening the world indeed. The expression makes us sick. This government is a howling farce. It cannot, or rather does not, protect its citizens within its own borders. Shove the Bartholdi statue, torch and all, into the ocean until the liberty of this country is such as to make it possible for an inoffensive and industrious colored man to earn a respectable living for himself and family without being Ku Kluxed, perhaps murdered, his daughter and wife outraged, and his property destroyed. The idea of liberty of this country enlightening the world, or even Patagonia, is ridiculous in the extreme. Commenting on Emma's poem, her contemporary poet, man of letters, Harvard professor, and international diplomat, James Russell Lowell, incidentally also a devoted member of the Athenaeum, wrote to her, I liked your sonnet about the statue much better than I like the statue itself. Because your sonnet gives its subject a raison d'etre, which it wanted before, quite as much as it wanted a pedestal. You have set it on a noble one, saying admirably just the right word to be said, an achievement more arduous and successful than that of the sculptor. This gift from the French people to the people of the United States was meant as a celebratory allegory based on France's proud motto since its own revolution in 1789, Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité. This painting was the best known French representation of La Liberté. When Bartholdi and La Boulet dreamed up their scheme, it was already famous. La Liberté Guidant Le Peuple, painted by Théodore Jericho in 1830. The pose is suggestive. It had become instantly famous throughout France. It is still, almost 200 years later, printed on French money. The Statue of Liberty was the brainchild of liberal French politician Édouard René de Laboulet. 1811 to 1883, he lived. Uh, he did not live to attend the dedication three years after his death, and he never knew Emma Lazarus's poem, written the year he died. Laboulaye's principal objective was to remind Americans that it was the French, during the great century later dubbed the Enlightenment, the century of Voltaire, Rousseau, Diderot, Montesquieu, who had laid the intellectual and political groundwork for the American Revolution. It was also his idea to celebrate the emancipation of African slaves in the United States. Laboulet, to his credit, headed a French anti-slavery society. He was a great admirer of Abraham Lincoln, and the notion of a colossal monument struck Laboulet in 1865 after Lincoln's assassination. 
He shared this idea with his close friend, the sculptor Frédéric Auguste Bartholdi, 1834-1904. Bartholdi, incidentally, was himself derived from an immigrant Italian family that had settled in France. The grand scheme to offer the United States a colossal statue originated some 20 years before Emma Lazarus was asked to compose a poem. She was appealed to only in 1883 by Joseph Pulitzer, who took charge of raising the money in America to construct the foundation pedestal for the French gift. De Laboulet never knew that Emma Lazarus single-handedly would rebrand his brainchild Mother of Exiles. Neither did Bartholdi, though he was there at the dedication. Listen closely to the whole text of Emma Lazarus's sonnet. Note that it begins with an emphatic contradistinction. This colossus will not be like that colossus, the one you've heard about, the Colossus of Rhodes, one of the famous seven wonders of the ancient world. The New Colossus, 1883, by Emma Lazarus. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that Twin Cities frame. Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp. Could almost be construed as a rebuke to the French impulse to celebrate itself through a gift to America. Worldwide welcome. The, the, the sight of the statue in the mouth of New York Harbor eventually made Lazarus's stirring words a compelling reinterpretation. But the statue was not there when Emma Lazarus composed her sonnet. What was on her mind in 1883 was aiding refugees to New York who were fleeing anti-Semitic pogroms in Eastern Europe. The assassination of Tsar Alexander II in 1881 led to widespread violence and persecution of Jews, and those who became refugees from these horrors were forced to live in conditions that the wealthy Lazarus had never experienced. She saw in Pulitzer's request for a poem a way to express her empathy for refugees who were already arriving in New York City and crowded into tenements in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. At first, she had replied tartly, I can't write a poem about a statue, but she did. Only two years later did the statue actually arrive. On June 17, 1885, the Statue of Liberty, dismantled and packed in hundreds of crates, arrived in the hold of the French steamer Isère, one colossal French immigrant entering New York Harbor. Her mission had been anticipated by a descendant of Jewish immigrants from Portugal. The descendant of Italian immigrants to France had spent over a decade designing and building, assembling in Paris, and then disassembling for shipment his mother of exiles without quite realizing that was what she was destined to be.
The statue's ironies multiply. French civil engineer Gustave Eiffel, born Buchenhausen, his father was a German immigrant in France, designed and supervised the building of the complex armature that supports the Colossus. And then Eiffel went on to design and build his signature tower in Paris. No poet ever, to my knowledge, so successfully changed the thrust, symbolism, meaning, and policy behind a symbolic monument than did Emma Lazarus with her poem. Time to switch gears to the present. A young poet in contemporary Ireland has just published a poem that seems to be a rising to W.H. Auden's challenge, quoted by Bob in his preface, to make a vineyard of the curse. Leontia Flynn, as yet little known in America, has farmed the following startling verses for us, with, among other things, the plight of contemporary immigrants on her mind. The Glitch, poem for 2016 by Leontia Flynn. When the world threw up its hands and wobble tipped into dysfunction, faction facing faction posed in uncompromising opposition and posting their insults over the abyss. The logic binary, the tone de trop, well, it all seemed an outsized version of the glitch or gremlin in the works that harrowed us and jammed the comms. Male wrath meets female shame and panic. None too blithely passionate. Our words contract round one another's throat. Who sets the snares? Who wired so weirdly wrong the circuits? The outrageous patriarch sitting in state? Or yes, the one that stalks up through your blighted childhood, hectoring and sowing fear might know. We don't. We watch the displaced flee or freeze in alleyways. Our righteous take their vigils to the streets. Homogeneous, peremptory, and too late. Their cry re-echoed, one of disbelief. Who woke us to the bad dream of our life? Who broke the loom and lobbed the first loud stone so that this mirror cracked from side to side that we'd eyeballed Oblivious, so long shocking us roughly into adulthood. The year prolongs its asshole smash and grab its wrecking spree with us on separate coasts, hunched round the narratives of all we've lost. Like two spectators on apocalypse and searching for where the blame lies in this matter, we rifle bleakly through the microdata. Leon Schifflin, 2017. Here's some current relevant microdata. Immigrants from Caribbean countries currently make up the largest group of the Boston area's foreign-born residents accounting for 15% of the population. Among these, Haitians are currently the largest group. People from Vietnam, Cambodia, Russia, Central America, and China and Taiwan also con con constitute big portions of the area's immigrants. Refugees from war in Syria, Somalia, Iraq, Afghanistan are fewer or have recently been banned. Haitians are about to lose in large numbers the special protections that recognize their great suffering from the 2010 earthquake. Where's the poetry in any of this? We seldom pause to consider that immigration is only one side of horrible pressures forcing emigration. The forces that impel floods of tired, poor, huddled masses 
are forces of dehumanizing hardship, violence and war, natural disasters of breathtaking scope, persecution and mayhem, extreme poverty and homelessness, in some cases, starvation and destitution. These are not conducive to poetry. But here is a poem by Li Young Li, a contemporary Chinese-American who immigrated to America via Singapore. His poem expresses the pain, the disorientation, the interior tumult in one's sense of self that comes with deracination, often with extreme trauma, and the separate shock of reassimilation in a foreign land, especially if the famous welcome is a slippery sham. Immigrant Blues by Leung Lee. People have been trying to kill me since I was born, a man tells his son, trying to explain the wisdom of learning a second tongue. It's an old story from the previous century about my father and me. The same old story from yesterday morning about me and my son. It's called Survival Strategies and the Melancholy of Racial Assimilation. It's called Psychological Paradigms of Displaced Persons called The Child Who'd Rather Play Than Study. Practice until you feel the language inside you, says the man. But what does he know about inside and outside? My father, who was spared nothing in spite of the languages he used. And me, confused about the flesh and the soul, who asked once into a telephone, Am I inside you? You're always inside me, a woman answered, at peace with the body's finitude, at peace with the soul's disregard of space and time. Am I inside you? I asked once, lying between her legs, confused about the body and the heart. If you don't believe you're inside me, you're not, she answered, at peace with the body's greed, at peace with the heart's bewilderment. It's an ancient story from yesterday evening called Patterns of Love in Peoples of Diaspora, called Loss of the Home Place and the Defilement of the Beloved, called I want to sing, but I don't know any songs. Let's back up a century and a half. At the start of the great Irish famine migration in mid-19th century, more than a century before Lee Young Lee wrote his poem, an Irish exile destined to become famous in Boston, John Boyle O'Reilly, also defied the odds and became a poet as he knew only too well, that made him one of the useless ones. The Useless Ones by John Boyle O'Reilly Poets should not reason, let them sing. Argument is treason, bells should ring. Statements none nor questions, nomic words. Spirit cries, suggestions, like the birds. He may use deduction who must preach. He may praise instruction who must teach. But the poet duly fills his part when the song bursts truly from his heart. For no purpose springing, for no pelf, he must do the singing for itself. Not in lines austerely let him build, not the surface merely 
let him yield fearless, uninvited, like a spring, opal words, enlightened, let him sing. As the leaf grows sunward, song must grow. As the stream flows onward, song must flow. Useless? I, for measure, roses die, but their breath gives pleasure. God knows why. John Boyle O'Reilly. Such a poem is startling because it emerges despite the trauma that drove O'Reilly to Boston. Famine literature does not readily yield poetry. Statistics rarely sing either. Between 1846 and 1854, more than two million Irish people immigrated to the United States. Irish immigrants were largely pushed out of their homeland by the potato blight, a disease that destroyed the potato crop in Ireland. The largest wave of Irish immigrants to the United States began in the 1840s. Between 1846 and 1854, more than two million Irish people immigrated to the United States. A million or more perished in their fields and cottages. The primarily Catholic Irish immigrants increased the U.S. population by nearly 10% just 70 years after American independence. Eloquence was strained another way when one witnessed such a catastrophe. Here is some prose with a desperate mission from one John Mitchell in 1854, an eyewitness to Irish famine. We know the whole story. The father was on a public work and earned the sixth part of what would have maintained his family, which was not always paid him, but still it kept them alive for three months, and so instead of dying in December, they died in March. And the agonies of those three months, who can tell? The poor wife wasting and weeping over her stricken children, the heavy-laden, weary man with black night thickening around him, thickening within him, feeling his own arms shrink and his step totter with the cruel hunger that gnaws away his life, and knowing too surely that all this will be over soon. From a poor but honest farmer, he is sunk down into one for whom there is nothing firm or stable. The pillars of the world are rocking around him. The sun for him is dark and silent as the moon when she deserts the night. Even ferocity or thirst for vengeance he can never feel again, for the very blood in him is starved into a thin, chill serum. And if you prick him, he will not bleed. Now he can totter forth no longer. And he stays at home to die. But his darling wife is dear to him no longer. Alas, and alas, there is a dull, stupid malice in their looks. They forget that they had five children, all dead weeks ago, and flung coffinless into shallow graves. Nay, in the frenzy of their despair, they would rend one another for the last morsel in that house of doom. And at last, in misty dream of driveling idiocy, they die utter strangers. 1854. John Boyle O'Reilly came to Boston in this mid-century wave, but he came by a different route. Condemned to death as a Fenian rebel, he was reprieved from hanging at the last moment and deported instead to a harsh prison colony in Western Australia, from which he escaped. A very long story indeed. But once established in Boston, he became a great defender of immigrant and Negro rights and could not fathom how certain American citizens could fail to empathize with self-evident misery. O'Reilly wrote a long poem 
extolling Crispus Attucks, the African-American killed in 1770 at the Boston Massacre, the first shedding of blood leading to the revolution and liberty. And in the long poem, a startling stanza stands out because it takes on the Tory conservatives and their incomprehensible self-removal from basic human sympathies. From Crispus Attucks, Negro Patriot killed in Boston, March 5th, 1770. Forever the fountain of common hopes and kindly sympathies, Indian and Negro, Saxon and Celt, Teuton and Latin and Gaul, mere surface shadow and sunshine while the sounding unifies all. One love, one hope, one duty theirs, no matter the time or ken, there never was separate heartbeat in all the races of men. But alien is one of class, not race. He has drawn the line for himself. His roots drink life from inhuman soil, from garbage of pomp and pelf. His heart beats not with the common beat. He has changed his life stream's hue. He deems his flesh to be finer flesh. He boasts that his blood is blue. Patrician, aristocrat, Tory, whatever his age or name, to the people's rights and liberties, a traitor ever the same. The natural crowd is a mob to him, their prayer a vulgar rhyme. The freeman's speech is sedition, and the patriot's deed a crime. Wherever the race, the law, the land, whatever the time or throne, the Tory is always a traitor to every class but his own. Neil Swidey, on September 26, 2017, introduced into this Athenaeum series a sobering reminder of Boston's own past and the formation a century ago among the affluent, educated, and well-established citizens of Boston of the Immigration Restriction League. This league was formed at about the same time O'Reilly wrote that poem. The Immigration Restriction League nurtured and propagated urgent, if narrow, anti-immigrant sentiments. In a class of professionals likely to be, in their time, subscribed members of the Athenaeum. Decidedly, their hearts beat not with the common beat. Their sentiments were accompanied by high-minded arguments and rhetoric and concerted legislative assaults on would-be immigrants. Uh, Neil Swidey reminded us here uh, that here in Boston, over a century ago, and contemporaneously with the unveiling of the new Colossus in New York Harbor, uh, and here I uh, quote Mr. Swidey, an immigration urtext was painstakingly assembled, brick by nativist brick, in Boston by three Brahmin intellectuals beginning in 1894. That's when the trio founded the Immigration Restriction League, the equivalent of a, a modern-day think tank, just five years after all three had graduated from Harvard. Leading the group was Prescott Farnsworth Hall, a lawyer and Brookline homebody who was largely unknown, even in his day. The other two founders were Harvard classmates Charles Warren and Robert de Courcy Ward. And here's a sampling of the sort of texts they produced and collected for publication whenever they could command press or magazine coverage. It must be apparent to every candid and patriotic American, whatever may be his politics, that there is cause for alarm, that there is real danger if hordes of degraded foreigners are to be allowed to swarm into our country. They will reduce us to the standard of the countries they have left 
and in addition become voters without regard to legal conditions. At the time, the hordes of degraded foreigners they were concerned about in Boston were mainly Irish and Italian immigrants, fast becoming the largest ethnic ancestry populations in Boston. They did indeed supplant the dominant English-descended and Protestant Roman class descended from colonial and revolutionary Bostonians. The political takeover of city and state government was how democracy manifested itself, just as the Immigration Limitation League had feared. The League printed this. When refugees from insupportable conditions abroad bring with them the very conditions from which they fly, then an hour has struck for the rulers of a free people to look first to the welfare of their own people and their own race before admitting the inefficient surplus of a lower nation, 1893. That was written 10 years after Emma Lazarus's poem and a decade before it was installed on a bronze plaque at the foot of the Statue of Liberty. Here's more from the League. The more generations there are of ignorant superstition, thriftlessness, and political passivity stretching out behind him, the more undesirable from every point of view the immigrant becomes. 1892. 1894. It seems to me that our land should no longer be the refuge for the scum of Europe. And they reprinted this. Uh, and circulated it, first published in 1892. A stranger who is at first filled with sympathy for the poor Italian laborer among us will soon learn that disgust should take the place of sympathy when he sees the scum of Europe content to swarm in shanties like hogs, to contract scurvy by a steady diet of the cheapest salt pork, to suffer sore eyes and sick bodies rather than buy a towel and wash tub, to endure typhoid fever rather than undergo the expense of the most primitive sanitary device. The author of these words was thinking of Boston's North End, once the home of Boston colonial patriots but recently become the Little Italy we still know today. Such sentiments spread more generally from Boston to other cities and led to the lynching of 11 Italian laborers in New Orleans. On March 14, 1891, 11 Italian Americans in New Orleans, Louisiana, were lynched for their alleged role in the murder of police chief David Hennessy. The lynching took place the day after the trial of nine of the 19 men indicted in the murder. Six of these defendants had been acquitted, and a mistrial had been declared for the remaining three because the jury failed to agree on their verdicts. There was widespread suspicion that an Italian network of criminals had generated the killing of the police chief in a period of rising crime. Believing the jury had been bribed, a mob broke into the jail where the men were being held and killed 11 of them. The mob numbered in the thousands and included some of the city's most prominent citizens. American press coverage of the event was largely congratulatory and those responsible for the lynching were never charged. Following the lynchings in New Orleans, 1,500 Boston Italians with cold black hair and eyes, according to the Boston Globe, gathered in Faneuil Hall to protest and demand reparations. Echoing the immigration argument of his era and foreshadowing the dividing lines of our own, Republican Senator Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts faint-heartedly condemned the wild justice of the mob, but explained that the underlying cause was, quote, the utter carelessness with which we treat immigration to this country. Unless the United States enacted more restrictive immigration laws, Henry Cabot Lodge warned, quote, 
we must be prepared for just such events as that at New Orleans, not merely bringing in their train murder and sudden death, but breeding race antagonisms and national hostilities which never existed before and which need never have an existence if we deal properly with this momentous problem of unchecked immigration. Lodge was a supporter of 100% Americanism, a common theme in the nativist movement of the era. In an address to the New England Society of Brooklyn in 1888, Lodge stated, Let every man honor and love the land of his birth and the race from which he springs and keep their memory green. It is a pious and honorable duty. But let us have done with British Americans and Irish Americans and German Americans and so on and all be Americans. If a man is going to be an American at all, let him be so without any qualifying adjectives. And if he is going to be something else, let him drop American from his personal description. He did not, however, believe that all races were equally capable or worthy of being assimilated. In The Great Peril of Unrestricted Immigration, Lodge wrote, You can take a Hindu and give him the highest education the world can afford, but you cannot make him an Englishman. And he further cautioned against the mixing of the higher and lower races. On the moral qualities of the English-speaking race, therefore, rest our history, our victories, and all our future. There is only one way in which you can lower those qualities or weaken those characteristics, or weaken those characteristics, and that is by breeding them out. If a lower race mixes with a higher in sufficient numbers, history teaches us that the lower race will prevail. All immigration questions hinge on empathy. Some understanding of the plight and sorrow, misery and the need of the arriving immigrant. The more desperate the new arrival is, however the more driven and despairing, the more he, she, they are likely to frighten and unsettle those they run toward for refuge. This is as true today as it was when Irish peasants were fleeing famine and millions of southern Italian and Sicilian contadini were escaping desperate poverty. The present detentions of the undocumented the rescinding of reassuring guarantees to the illegal children of past refugees, the deportation of those already here for refuge who are frequently subject to retaliatory vengeance for having left in the first place, and the blocking of access to thousands in need of humanitarian relief and shelter. All these have become current policy and the heart of a renewed political debate. The resurgence of immigration restriction has brought back an age-old rhetoric of public opprobrium and national emergency. We can hear almost word for word the cranky, selfish ideas promulgated a hundred years ago by Boston's own homegrown immigration restriction league. Emma Lazarus's Mother of Exiles is holding up a stop sign, not a welcoming torch. Poetry is typically stymied by outrage and silenced by a choking, inarticulate sense of injustice, of callous inhumanity. And yet, fragments float up. And here is one from the present. Mud Mothers by Linnell Moise. The children of Haiti are not mythological. We are starving or eating salty cakes made of clay. Is Haiti really free? 
if our babies die starving, if we cannot write our names, read our rights, keep our leaders in their seats, can we be free, really? If our mothers are mud, if dead Columbus keeps cursing us and nothing changes when we curse back, we are a proud, resilient people, though we return to dust daily, soft gray clay with hot black tears, savor snot cakes over suicide. We are hungry. Creative people sip bits of laughter when we are thirsty and dance despite this asthma called debt, congesting legendarily liberated lungs. And fragments float up from the past too, when the new Colossus was brand new. From There Is Blood on the Earth by John Boyle O'Reilly. There is blood on the face of the earth. It reeks through the years and is red, where truth was slaughtered at birth and the veins of liberty bled. Lo, vain is the hand that tries to cover the crimson stain. It spreads like a plague and cries like a soul in writhing pain. The wrong of today shall be rude in a thousand coming years. The debt must be paid in blood, the interest in tears. Shall none stand up for right whom the evil passes by? But God had the globe in sight and hearkens the weak one's cry. Wherever a principle dies. Nay, principles never die, but wherever a ruler lies and a people share the lie, where right is crushed by force and manhood is stricken dead, there dwelleth the ancient curse and the blood on the earth is red. Yeah.